Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 358, and I had a conversation with Tony Green. Tony's an educator at Bishop O'Dowd High School, teaching Advanced World History and AP African American Studies. He's also co-moderator for their Black Student Union. This is his second visit to Hey Human. You can hear his first visit from episode 213. But on today's episode, we discuss history, the impact of youth on culture and politics, the importance of knowing cultural, political, and sociological history, and more. I wish I had had a teacher like Mr. Green when I was in high school. I think he's brilliant. I think his kids are brilliant, his students. uh, I've sat in on a couple of his classes over Zoom, and it makes me have hope for the future. These kids are so, so smart. Okay, check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links, Hey Human merch, and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you like to get your music. Please check out my relationship and sex show with my friend Mara Edelman. She's a sexologist and health practitioner. The show is called Are We There Yet? And you can find it on YouTube, Are We There Yet? Podcast Show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Be well, be kind, be love, and lift each other up. All right, let's get into it. Here we go. Tony Green, welcome back to Hey Human. It's so good to have you again. Well, it's good to see you. It's good to be here. Three years ago, I think. I'm flabbergasted that that much time has gone by. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm so excited. I love talking with you. So thank you for taking the time to come back on the show. Oh, yes. My pleasure. Let's dig in. Okay. Tell me what's new in life. Well, um, biggest thing is I've got a brand new class, uh, uh, Advanced Placement African-American Studies. Uh, The last time we talked, I was teaching uh, African-American studies and black nationalism. And since then, the uh, college board has seen fit, you know, to, uh, you know, codify this new course, which is, uh, um, you know, it's very exciting. And it's a much more complete look um, at the history of uh, Africans and African-Americans and their relationship uh, with America. Did you have any pushback at all? I would say uh, uh, it's starting the class, no pushback. The, uh, um, you know, the, the rollout of the class actually happened during the pandemic. So we got the uh, information late, which I'm sure a lot of uh, a lot of schools did. And they were so concerned with the, uh, you know, the response to the pandemic. I think a lot of them may have you know missed out on that uh, initial rollout. But, uh, you know, I got the information within a week. So uh, as a school, we really you know, hustled and, and got it together and, you know, got that invitation and got back there to D.C., you know, at Howard University and, you know, went through the training, you know, met all the teachers and the, uh, you know, the, the, the people in charge and, and the uh, schools nationwide and had a real good time with it. As an educator and especially as a black educator, in a, is your school predominantly uh, people of color or is it predominantly white? No, it's predominantly white, but there's a real good mixture. You know, the mixture uh, definitely reflects the the, uh, Bay Area. Can you talk a bit, especially as the perspective of an educator, most importantly, because you have spent a lifetime teaching, but how much historically things have been left out of the education of our children in the context of not just white history, but everybody history? So I would say if you're looking at 100% being the, uh, uh, you know, being the value, I would say 95% has been left out, you know, of, you know, the uh, uh, the traditional way that that uh, U.S. history has been taught. It's definitely taught from a, a Western perspective. And could you speak to why that's a problem? Well, I'm, I'm I'll give you a little history of, about it. So. You know, when uh, U.S. history was first developed, what Thomas Jefferson had in mind is he had uh, uh, in mind the citizenship education 
for wealthy white men who could vote. So it was designed really to instill civic virtue amongst the voting population. So what it did is it highlighted what that population um, may have done in their contributions to the development of uh, of uh, you know the United States, and really left out everybody else, which is uh, you know which is a tiny fraction of the truth. You know, in in how we came to be as a country and how we developed as a capitalist nation. It's a major hole in education. It is interesting to me, as we see in the news, folks like DeSantis, who is trying desperately to cut out these these lessons and these lesson plans, and how many people are so up in arms citing CRT is terrible and not even understanding what it is that they're rallying against exactly. Uh, could you speak a little bit to what you think critical race theory is, is that what is actually being taught and, and maybe help to help people understand what it is all about? Well, since I've never uh, uh, taught law and I've never taken a law class, I can give you my idea of what critical race theory is okay, without really knowing because I never taught law. So it's the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the basis is the idea that the institutions of the United States were actually developed with the foundation of racism, you know, to its core. And, um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, historical fact and historical accuracy, you know, since the nation was essentially it was colonized, you know, by the British, the Spanish and the French, um, you know, and taken away from the native people who were here. I would say that, you know, those three, uh, um, you know, those three groups uh, put themselves in a position of power and influence legally, which allowed them to uh, continue to control, um, you know, the Americas uh, still today. And so if you look at the foundation uh, being, you know, the basis of the foundation okay, being uh, uh, giving advantage you know, legally to those three groups of colonizers, I would say that the depiction of, uh, you know, critical race theory as found in, in law classes is pretty close to being accurate. You know, the case of Florida is interesting since the, um, you know, the first non-Indigenous uh, settlement in Florida was largely a Black settlement, you know, settled by, you know, Afro-Spanish speakers. You know, it, it's interesting that a, a state like Florida, you know, would, would attempt to censor, you know, the version of history in which they are, you know, the, the foundation, that African foundation that they have is, is totally censored and hidden from the population. It really makes no sense. But, uh, you know, again, ignorance is, is uh, you know, the, the, the foundation of racism. So I think, you know, that, you know, that's really the core of that, uh, um, you know, that conflict is going on in Florida right now. It's not just Florida either. I mean, people were screaming at the rooftops about it all over the place. I, I heard something. It was, uh, it's not enough to, it's not enough to not be racist. You have to be active in your non-racism. Right. Yeah. And I think that's such a profound sentiment and it strikes me as so curious how doubling down some folks are about hearing that our country has a bloodied past and a, a, a sad past and also a lovely wonderful past you know that there's a lot there's a lot there and to shine light on on the horribleness is just as important and how people were abused and mistreated and mishandled and forced to build the country on their backs and then yes. thrown aside or forced Absolutely. to fight in wars and then thrown aside, things like that. It is, I, I don't, I personally don't understand how, how that is a, such a problem. And I don't know for you as an educator, if you have a theory on why it is so traumatic for someone to to understand that there's a whole lot of stuff that you don't know not you not you but the world you know what i mean the the royal you right well 
you know, the, the idea of a loss of privilege because of a demographic change is very frightening to some people. You know, the, the, um, you know, the, the nation itself has more than enough wealth to take care of its entire population many times over. But I believe that there is a belief that if you attempt to repair damage uh, that's been done financially to the people who have been wronged, then you are going to lose some of your financial advantage. Are you referring to reparations? Well, yes, I'm referring to repairing the damage. Um, You know, I had my students do a project in which they calculated the financial value, um, you know, of, um, you know, Africans and their contributions to the entire Western world, including Western Europe, you know, the nations that uh, engaged in the slave trade. And the the number is astronomical. If you look just at the 4 million people who were enslaved and you calculate their value as chattel, their value exceeds the, um, you know, the entire capital of all other industries in the United States at that time. So just the, the, you know, the, just the cost, you know, of each individual, you know, in a plantation called Laura, Louisiana, the engineer that built their uh, plantation was valued at $100,000. And that's one person, right? Because of his, you know, his knowledge in engineering, he was able to build a 25,000 square foot plantation to withstand flood stages, you know, the Mississippi River, uh, Lake Pontchartrain and the Gulf of Mexico. So that plantation never flooded because uh, um, most of the people, you know, who were enslaved, you know, had, you know, great minds, right? And they were enslaved because of the value that they would bring, you know, to the, the new colonies. So if that value was, was, was shared, you know, by them and their families, there would be no need to repair this damage. Yeah, but the number of, uh, you know, the amount of money that they're valued at, and not just their labor and their production, but just their humanity is incalculable, right? So, and, and there's a fear that uh, um, if this damage, this these reparations are paid, that it somehow would, uh, it, w- it would hurt the pocketbooks, you know, those companies who engaged, you know, in this trade for so long and that, and, and uh, became wealthy off of this trade. I wonder why it is that people find it so hard to put themselves in other people's shoes. I think about Henrietta Lacks for, for one example, that her contribution to, to science and medicine is astronomical and that her family didn't see a dime. And yet off of her cells, billions upon billions that's not hyperbole that's just the truth right billions upon billions of money has been made but not a cent to go to that family right i don't think anybody on this planet would think that was okay right she's one example of you know tens of millions you know tens of millions over time you know my my class just did a uh, we called it our gentrification and 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 uh, redlining trip, you know, of North and West Oakland, in which the the students themselves, there was about a total of 70 of us. We went to North and West Oakland. You know, we went to uh, Lois the Pie Queen, okay, which is the oldest black business in Oakland. Okay, we went to Marcus Garvey Bookstore, the oldest black bookstore in the United States. And we went to the Black Panther House. And we actually, you know, uh, purchased goods and, and services to the tune of about $3,200 in one day. And if you look at, you know, the, the amount of money that has been lost in those three areas due to redlining, you know, and gentrification, the whole uh, um, field trip was designed to show them, you know, the, uh, you know, the property value loss uh, due to redlining and gentrification of, you know, these formerly African-American uh, neighborhoods. And look at, you know, look at the idea of generational wealth and, and how much generational wealth was lost by, you know, those families, you know, who lost their properties in a very short period of time. You know, my family is actually from central Florida. They're from Ocala. Um, and formerly, you know, my great grandfather 
Fulton Wilson was a huge property owner in Ocala. Let's see, he owned a bank. He owned a huge farm. He owned cotton gin. He owned a textile mill and he raised horses. And within the span of about 60 years, all of that property he owned was lost. So it was never passed down, you know, the family line generationally. And, you know, after the, uh, the Civil War, you had African-Americans who owned anywhere from 16 to 20 million acres of property. And over time, all of that property has been lost. You know, speaking of critical race theory, okay, due to some laws uh, and due to intimidation that cost 20 million acres of property. So if you look at the idea of repair and damage, the only reason why it's necessary is because of the theft that uh, you know took place in a very short period of time. Right. And a lot of that property is is valuable. Eminent domain was used as an example. Yeah, for sure. And eminent domain is that's a terrifying law and no one is safe from it. I don't I don't think people really understand that. And it's that thing, though. It's it's okay as long as it's happening to anyone else but me. Right. Right. In West Oakland, you know, when we took that field trip, you know, we also studied Dr. Brandy Summers Thompson, uh, our urban geographer from UC Berkeley, and the kids did projects, which she critiqued after the, uh, you know, after we took the field trip. There were over 750 homes lost to eminent domain once uh, certain structures, 980 freeway and a Cypress freeway were created in West Oakland. Right. So that's part of that property loss that needs to be repaired. And a lot of those people now are the the, uh, people who are living out on the street in the Bay. Right. Because when you displace, you know, big Victorian homes over 750, you know, you're putting a lot of people out on the, uh, you know, out on the street. Yeah. And the same thing happened to Americans who have Japanese heritage when World War Two kicked up and they start running around and imprisoning the Japanese and mm-hmm. eating their property and their farms. That was a land grab as well. Right. Right. So America has a, a history of that, unfortunately. And it's something that needs to be discussed because it's history, right? It should be history, not propaganda. If mm-hmm. the students understand, the students can actually deal with it, but it should be taught at a very early age, right? And then we can, if you learn from the past, then you can actually make corrections. There's a tweet concept from Nigeria called Sankofa, and that essentially what it is what it says. You have to look back to look forward, right? And if you don't look back, you can't look forward and make you know the necessary uh, adjustments. Absolutely, and I think we're seeing a lot of history repeating itself in our politic and our rhetoric right now. Right, which is terrifying in and of itself. I saw. Uh, something the other day on a little news clip, a news bite. And a woman uh, was a young woman had written a book about being woke in America and how being woke is uh, this leftist propagandist thing. And I do think that people use woke isms as a, as a way to make it sound like they, they couldn't have possibly have a lick of racism in them. You know, it's their virtue signaling, I believe they call it right. and all that. And one of the newscasters said, well, could you define what woke is? Uh, and she was at a loss. Of course, she fumbled over herself and it's since mm-hmm. gone viral and, and all that. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? I think the bottom line is when you ask folks to describe what these terms are that have been vilified, they can't. They don't know what exactly it means. And I was like, well, well then what does woke mean exactly? And I, so I did a little Googling and it, it was a, it's a historically black term according mm-hmm. to Google machines. And I thought, well, there you go. I never knew that. And it, it's, and then the idea that it was appropriated from black culture into now this white virtue signaling thing, like I'm woke, I'm woke, I'm woke. And I am a big fan of actions speak louder than words. I don't care what you're saying. What are you doing? Right. And that's, there's a big disconnect there. Can you talk a little bit about what you see in terms of woke and wokeness? Yeah. It means being aware. So aware of your past, aware of your present and aware of the potential of the future, 
right? And, and you know, uh, essentially what it says is don't get caught sleeping or don't get caught slipping because if you do, it's your own fault, right? So you should educate yourself and understand your environment, you know, understand your foundation and understand your future. And that's why, you know, African-American studies is so important, you know, that, you know, what it does is it creates a sense of understanding why um, people are in the position that they're in now. Why is America in the position that it is financially? It's because of free labor over a 400 year period. You know, why are the people that who are responsible for that uh, free labor in the financial position uh, therein, it's because they gave up, you know, their free labor for over 400 year uh, period. They weren't paid for it, right? So think of uh, uh, if the uh, my ancestors were actually paid what their value was over 400 years, what financial position I would be in, right? So being woke means, you know, I'm very well versed in African-American history and I understand why we're in the position that we're in today. And what I'm doing is I'm educating the future, right? So they could actually look back, understand it, and set a successful foundation for the future. And that's just not black students, right? That's American students in general. So they can start to relate to one another, you know, on a, on a, a, a basis of knowledge and not a basis of propaganda and ignorance, which is what, um, you know, we have been taught for so long. And also to say, not on my watch again, this will never happen again. This sort of atrocity won't happen again. And it's a genocide. I mean, we talk a lot about the, the, the genocide of other cultures and peoples, which is important to talk about. Um, but we don't talk about the genocide of, of the black community of which I think that's an appropriate terminology. I mean, they, there was desperate tries to annihilate and take away blacks from communities and from society in general. And that hasn't necessarily changed. There are plenty of people out there today that think that there should be some other, not only city, town, country, or planet where black people live or Jews mm-hmm. or, or Chinese now because of uh, the COVID uh, racism. So you bring up an interesting point about the fact that you teach students. And I think one of the things that I hear, and I'm one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on the show again, Hey, I think you're fucking brilliant. And every time we talk, I love it. But I, I think the fact that you are in the school boots on the ground, as they say, teaching kids and opening up minds And it's kids from all walks of life. And there is this rhetoric out there that, again, I would call it more propaganda, even that, you know, oh, if white kids are sitting in a class and this stuff's being talked about, it's going to make them feel bad. And we don't want those white kids to feel bad about themselves, which, first of all, you're not giving your kid very much credit, you know, if you think that they're just going to be a puddle of self, you know, whatever, because they're hearing the truth about the history of this country. If anything, you're empowering these kids. Do you find that the white kids in your class are coming to you afterwards crying, saying, I don't want to learn this. I know I feel terrible. (laughs) Absolutely not. What I find in my class is that all the students relate to one another as equals. And the more they understand about the history of African-American people or African people and African-American people, the more they question why were they ever put in this position of ignorance? Because it's not something that's dangerous, right? You know, the, the understanding that, you know, the oldest university in the world today, the University of Kareen, was actually started by two African women in 856 AD. Why is that dangerous? You know, the, the fact that uh, Abu Bakari II in the Mali Empire gave, uh, traveled, uh, you know, to the Americas almost 200 years before Columbus. Why is that dangerous? Right. After all, his brother was the wealthiest man in human history, uh, Mansa Musa. So why would that possibly be dangerous? You know, the, the, you know, the, the fact that there were, you know, universities all over Africa. You know, why would, you know, white kids be afraid of that? 
know, the fact that you had at least four popes in the Catholic Church, you know, or the, the greatest emperors of, uh, of Rome were African, all right? Septimus Severus, who was probably the, one of the most important leaders in the history of Great Britain, he was an African. Why would that at all be dangerous, right? And it sparks more curiosity amongst the students than it does fear. In fact, I've never seen a student cry in my class because of something that we've covered. You know, what I've seen them be as engaged. I've got some really brilliant students, right? And the projects they execute are pretty amazing. You know, we had, um, you know, a mutual friend by the name of Eric Jones, you know, who took my students, uh, you know, one weekend out on a boat and we cal calculated, you know, current readings and we calculated, you know, wind speeds. And, you know, we went to, um, you know, had a class on Angel Island where Eric actually gave, you know, the students a lecture on the ability of Abu Bakari II to have traveled from Mali, you know, to the New World within 40 days based on, you know, the currents that were available at the time. So that's not dangerous. It's enlightening. And it really excites the students. You know, that nonsense about, you know, white students being afraid. No, I've got some brilliant students, you know, of all colors in my class, and that's who they are. You know, it, it you know, it excites me to, to uh, uh, you know, get to work with them on a daily basis, as a matter of fact. Well, the people who are afraid, of course, are the people in power who know that the more educated and the more unified the populace is, the more they stand up to bullshit. Right. Right. That's what they're reminds, really afraid of. Yes. Reminds me of Fred Hampton. You know, the reason why, you know, Fred Hampton was assassinated, you know, in Chicago is because he created a rainbow coalition, you know, of, of, of poor whites, you know, from the South, you know, uh, poor Latinos from Chicago, poor blacks from Chicago. And they work together to create social change. Same thing about the Panthers in Oakland. You know, they created a unified body for a unified response. You know, uh, education is dangerous, you know, but it's dangerous to the status quo, right? It's not dangerous, you know, to change things. It's dangerous to the status quo. You know, J. Edgar Hoover said, the most dangerous thing that the Panthers ever did, and I was a participant in this, you know, so uh, I guess I'm a revolutionary. Most dangerous thing that the Panthers did was actually have a free breakfast program for elementary schools, right? And the reason being is because it taught them to think independently and it taught them the truth. So it wasn't the, the you know, the, the guns that the Panthers used to carry around to protect the neighborhood, right? It was those grits, eggs, wheat toast, and orange juice. See, I still remember that today, you know, and those uh, studies of history. Right. Because what they do is they spark social change. Right. And social change is dangerous to the status quo. And to show kids that we talk about this all the time, not just you and I on the last time we got together, but just in general on this show that representation matters. And mm -hmm. so if kids look around they they reflect back what they see. They're just sponges, as you put it, learning, you know, observing and mimicking what they're seeing. So if there is pride and joy and intellect and powerful role models, that's what they're going to have in their heart. And that's what's going to carry them up through their life. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we want that for our children? Right. Right. Because then it threatens certain people in power. It threatens certain levels of privilege. You know, one of the things that was attacked in the advanced place in African-American studies is, is women's studies. Now, how ridiculous is that? The, the civil rights movement was mainly young women. Black Panther Party was mainly young women, probably about 65 to 70 percent. You know, Angela one of the studies. Davis. Yeah. Yes, a whole bunch of them. Elaine Brown. Yeah. Kathleen Cleaver, you know, Sada Shakur, you know, you can, I mean, you can just go on and on. You know, one of the things that we studied is prior to colonization, you know, the role of women in West Africa was extremely prominent. In fact, it was, it was very difficult for you to differentiate leaders who are males or females, because the idea was humanity. It was not, you know, sex roles, identified sex roles. You had women in the, in the military, as you saw with, you know, the movie Black Panther, 
and Wakanda forever. You know, by the way, we had, you know, Masamba Dia was uh, part of our class. I've like, seen him perform and he's, yes. I see, I saw the video that you sent me, but yes. I got to see him perform at the Hollywood Bowl. It was so rad. It was exactly. so good. Yeah. Exactly. So powerful. Talk about feeling things in your bones. Yes. Yes. That's that oral tradition. You know, that's that oral tradition. But unless you know this, okay, you're going to view, and, and this is one thing I uh, uh, that a lot of the students are realizing too, that, you know, for most of their life, they've been taught that African-Americans were descendants of slaves. They haven't been taught that African-Americans were descendants, you know, of scholars. And so when you set that foundation you know of reality you know for you know a whole number of different ethnic groups you're going to view people differently right and people are going to view themselves differently because they're going to have a sense of self you know one of the uh, you know speaking of reparations i'm going to be working with uh, uh well i am working with a group of uc uh davis professors and uh you know a couple of professors from john hopkins university and we're going to take part in a conference called the Aswad Conference in uh, Ghana this summer, where we're going to actually look at, you know, reparations internationally, you know, from American point of view, from a Caribbean point of view, and from a Ghanaian point of view. So the, you know, the, we're actually going to look at the diaspora. And this conference was first established in 1962, and it was probably the earliest uh, post-colonial conference in Africa, right? So we're going to be, you know, continuing this study. And we're going to talk about, you know, how you repair damage in a number of different areas, right? You know, not looking for a handout. We're talking about repairing damage that was done over a 400-year period due to, to, to slavery. You know, we continue on, you know, part of this class is repairing that damage. So when you're talking about, you know, reparations and repairing damage, you're not talking about a cash payment. You're talking about repairing damage, you know, culturally you know, spiritually and financially. And mm -hmm. so this study of history is part of that uh, repairing of the damage that's been done. During Black History Month, uh, you sent me the video of the performance that your kids did at the school. Yes. Super. Yes. It was awesome. With your permission, I'll post it for people to be able to watch oh, it. Oh, please. Yeah. Please, definitely. Yeah, they did a, they really did a bang up job. Oh my gosh. Very that was, proud. That was leagues above the kind of stuff that happened in my school when I was growing up. There. <laughs> yes, yes. But that's what I mean. We we really have some. You know, we have some brilliant students. Yeah. So if you allow them to be brilliant, that's what you you know. That's what the outcome is going to be. Well, and that's what's so frustrating. It's like why you have these minds in these kids that you have the chance to expand them to mm -hmm. infinity and yes. all that will do is serve the community and the world and make it better and make it more vibrant and more exciting and, and, and move beyond leaps and bounds. I think part of the problem why we haven't seen a lot of technological advancement or, or medical advancement, we've been a little stunted. I mean, granted the computer chip, if you follow the tech track, that's one thing, but I'm talking about overall in invention and innovation, we, we've, we've had a little bit of a, a holding spell that I think it has a lot to do with the fact that there is all this, this containment happening with the minds of our children, mm -hmm. trying to control what they think, what they know, what they see. And I think there's a thing, honestly, that parents are scared that their kids will be smarter than them. I think there's a level of that too. Right. And, it, and it's true because they are, you know what I mean? They are, you know, the, uh, um, and, and if you look at some of the work that, that, uh, you know, my students have done, that brilliance really shows, you know, that brilliance really shows, but, you know, they collaborate. Most of our work is done in, in uh, group projects. So the students, you know, create a claim, right. And then what they do is they work on supporting the claim after they've done this research. And they really come up with some brilliant things like that Black History Month assembly you were talking about. You know, once that challenge was made out of Florida, you know, the students completely changed okay, what the um, that assembly was going to be like. And they just got, you know, on the uh, the whiteboard. And what they did is they just mapped the whole thing out. 
right? They map the whole thing out and they map the, you know, the, the, the different, you know, the different scenes out and they did their research and they just executed it. And it was all done at lunchtime. So we didn't have like two hours to plan it. We had each day, we had about uh, 45 minutes to plan it, you know, over pizza. And we did it uh, within a matter of, you know, from August until uh, February, right? And that's what they came up with. And, I mean, honestly, uh, they could take they could take that show on the road. I when I was watching it, I thought this could be on Broadway. <laughs> yes, yes, and that's all. A lot of it was improvised, but um, yeah, they did. You know, they they really did their research. But you know, when you challenge young people, you know, that's what they're going to come up with. Yeah, you present them with the challenge, have them do the research, and uh, and then so essentially, a lot of the uh, you know the research was actually done in class because it was curriculum that we used uh, during the the uh, first semester, the first two units, you know, a, a four unit class, right? We're now at the uh, the start of unit four, but uh, you know they could do a completely separate one, you know, looking at just unit three. Right. But they, you know, but but they're really brilliant and they're very creative. And it's much like that, that uh, the package that they put together with that, uh, you know, AP African-American uh, studies course, you know, even with the uh, the information that was supposed to be redacted, that information is still being studied and used. How do you with such a wealth of information and of history to go through how do you pick and choose your personally your curriculum how do you how in the world do you curate that okay well it's all based on you know uh the source reader and the information in the source reader collected by the school like the superintendent it's actually collected by the uh you know the, the college board right so what they did is actually created the curriculum and uh, month by month we we come together as a body and we look at the different you know material and how to manipulate it since it's still a uh, you know stage so a lot of what we're using now is is information that's been researched and developed by university professors and uh, what we do is we decide how to disseminate it and use it uh, and they they give you some ideas, you know, in the curriculum of what to do, but you can also use your own creativity. And that's what allows, you know, new teachers, you know, since it's so complete, new teachers can go through the curriculum and uh, teachers that have been teaching for a while, you know, can, you know, actually create the curriculum and use the curriculum in a, in a you know, in a, a more creative way, you know, based on what their experience level is. Yeah, but the curriculum is very, uh, it's very highly organized. It's very sound, right? So, uh, you know, next year, the the uh, number of teachers, uh, number of schools teaching it is going to expand from 600 to well over 800. You know, I think it's really about time. Well, that was going to be my next question was given the success and your kids are brilliant. I've sat in on a couple of your classes and it's exciting. Yes. It's so exciting. It makes me not panic so much about the future a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> but um, are you in your classes, are, are you sort of in the other 600 or so, like the beta testing to show that it's a really successful program and it can expand and expand and expand and hopefully move across the country? Yes. Well, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And that's one of the reasons why we get together on a regular basis. So we can talk about some of the successes and failures and some of the things that work and how we apply, you know, different knowledge. You know, we actually uh, um, we actually had a whole class where we cooked gumbo and, um, you know, and from, you know, literally from, you know, the, the, the vegetables and the crab and the, and the meat, you know, to completion. And we what we did is we used that to show uh, cultural creation of the Africans during the diaspora. Right. And cultural retention. Right. How African people, you know, held on to a lot of their beliefs. We've had drummers come in and how we held on our beliefs, you know, during the uh, uh, during the diaspora and how they may have changed based on the geography in the new world. But essentially the foundation, you know, from gumbo is okra stew, you know, the, the foundation of the drum, you know, the in, in Cuba. Right. And in Brazil and in Panama are the drums in West Africa. Right. You have different animal hides, you have different woods, but essentially the foundation is the same. Right. We had a 
you know, part of the uh, the assembly, we had a, a student, Quincy, do capoeira, okay, which a lot of people think is Brazilian in origin, but it's actually Angolan in origin. And what the uh, um, the Africans did on that diaspora is they just, you know, manipulated it and used that um, that dance style as, as more of a fighting style to com combat, you know, slavers, right? So that's cultural creation. So we look at that in a number of different ways. We've had college professors, uh, Professor Johnson uh, from the Bahamas came in, okay, gave a lecture. Uh, we had Amina Scott. Uh, who's a, a great uh, jazz bassist, a former student of mine that talked about the history of New Orleans and, and jazz music. Uh, we had Justin Hawkins, who actually, he is a guitar player for uh, Billie Eilish. Yeah, former student, you know, he came in and played. So we actually applied these lessons of, of, of culture you know, and uh, uh, spoken word, you know, broadly in the curriculum, because it's not a history class. Right. It, it's a studies class. So we look at spoken word. We look at music. We look at food. We look at dance. Yeah, and it's all a part of the uh, curriculum. Where were you when I was in high school? Is my question. <laughs> yes. Well, I was still teaching. You know, I was still teaching. Yeah, because I've been doing it for 42 years. So I was still yeah. teaching when you were in high school. I wish I'd had you or someone like you. Uh, I mean, there should be one of you in every school, honestly, or several of you, to be fair. You know, when I was watching the video, getting back again, to because it was just so cool. But I was thinking as I was watching it, listening to the music, I was noticing my body and how it felt. And I thought to myself, you know, we all come from the same place. All yes. of us, we're all descended from the same place. And when I hear music like that, it's it's as if my DNA sticks its little ears out and says, oh, I remember that. It gives me shivers talking about it, but it's, mm -hmm. it's like it wakes up a part of you that is maybe sleeping or forgets it's there. And in and, and watching that and listening to that music and the drums, um, it really does. It's it's like it wakes up your cells. Like you've been there before. Like you've been there before. Right. Like it's speaking your language, whatever language that is. The yes. language before language. Yes, the language before language, which was percussion. And that's where, you know, again, Masaba comes, you know, at the start of the assembly and at, actually at the start of uh, class. You know, I always say a prayer. I take it from poet Gil Scott Heron. And it goes, now more than ever, all the family must be together. Everybody everywhere must see the time is drawing near because common blood flows through common veins and all common eyes must see the same. And now more than ever, all the family must be together. And so it's true in every lesson, you know, the start of each year, it's always that we emanated from the same place in East Africa 250,000 years ago, right? And as we migrated from place to place and experience different environments that's responsible for the change but we are the same blood right and it's actually passed through you know the um through women uh, in the form of myochondrial dna right and what history teaches if you teach it correctly is that we are the same people okay we are of different cultures but we're exactly the same people right and once we act like it and you look at Sankofa again, once we act like it, you know, we're going to eliminate a lot of the problems that we experience. Amen to that. It's funny. I went to the doctor today because, as I said, I was getting <clears> over a cold. I'm still getting over a cold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you go to the doctor, they give you that piece of paper and it says that the, the you know, all the states say, you know, the doctors have to give it to you. It says, you know, how are you? How are you feeling? Are you feeling desperate, alone, isolated? Right, right, right. And says on a scale from one to five. And I, you know, I'm sitting with the nurse before the doctor comes in and I circle three on the one to five. And I looked at her, I said, does anybody ever put less than three? I mean, no. are you not paying attention? <laughs> you know, how do you not? And it's hard to not get bogged down in that feeling. So it, mm. it's why I get excited to talk to people like you or, you know, to see programs like the programs you're running. <clears throat> and I try to listen to those voices on amplification right. instead of the other ones. Although yeah. 
but it's, it's hard because, you know, a lot of my friends will say, oh, well, just stop listening. I'm like, you can't stop listening because once you stop listening, you can't stand up to the bullshit and the stuff that's wrong. So it's like, where do you find that, that happy medium of you have to pay attention and you have to be a voice and you have to be an ally. We have to be there for each other, but also don't do it to the point where you take yourself out. But you kind of have to, because right. if we don't, who's going to protect the kid, the kids yeah. coming up. Yeah. hundred percent. Correct. I feel the more that I'm around kids, you know, the more optimistic I am because they are optimistic. Right. And you can always find those, you know, those students who are going to be the, the, the difference makers. So what you, you know, what you attempt to do is try to uh, create them as difference makers. Right. And they have these great ideas. Right. And they think about the future, you know, in a positive sense. Right. And you, you set a nice, comfortable, comfortable foundation. And at some point, you know, you're going to find that, you know, that right mix, you know, of change makers. Yeah, but they're definitely out there. You know, they're definitely out there. And I see them every single year. You know, and that's, you know, that's one of the, the, the reasons I love to, to teach and love to go in the classroom. Right. Because the students are so optimistic. Yeah. And one can be a lot. And I know that that one can be a lot that it takes one voice and the one voice to speak up and right. that voice loud and confident and, and assured of, of who they are and, and why they are, which, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what our teachers are there to help navigate, to help the seed grow, to right. have the deep roots deep into the ground and to, to have the branches out into the world. Yeah. Yeah, I can tell, you know, and I think we've talked about my, um, you know, my papa, my stepdad before, you know. Military? He was in the military. He was in the military, first Marine Division, Iwo Jima campaign, right? He was drafted a year and a half after his father was lynched and thrown in the Mississippi River. So anyone who you would think would be, you know, depressed about the future, but he was drafted in the military, uh, since he was black, he collected bodies and body parts for two years, right? Got out of the, uh, um, you know, the World War II, uh, re-enlisted uh, Army Air Corps. In Army Air Corps, he was actually given a medal by President Johnson after Kennedy's assassination because he was a mechanic and he built the pod on the uh, Air Force One to carry uh, Kennedy's body after the assassination, right? So he was meddled. I got, got a picture of him being meddled by Lyndon B. Johnson. But one of the things that Papa told me is that even when he was meddled by the president of the United States, he still couldn't vote. He still couldn't vote. But he re-enlists in the Air Force during Vietnam, serves during Vietnam, gets out and retires, becomes a church deacon, and he makes the best cakes and desserts of anywhere in the United States. And he was up until he passed, he was one of the most happy, you know, that one of the most happy people that you could ever imagine. But think about what he's gone through. And I always think about if he could have gone through that and, and I didn't even include the depression, you know, there's always optimism, right? There's always optimism and it's always out there. You know, you just have to, a lot of times you have to search for it. And you've got to search for, you know, search for your truth and search for your meaning, right? And you got to push forward. And amplify voices that are making a difference. Definitely. Amplify positive voices. Yeah. Which is why you're here. (laughs) Yes. And I I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But, you know, I get it for my wife and my kids. You know, my wife and my kids, very, you know, humble people. You know, but they keep me, uh, they keep me on point and kids in class. You have a great Instagram and Facebook. I follow both, of course, but, uh, and by the way, I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend. Yes. Yeah. Gary Mason. Yeah. My best friend of 37 years. And you speaking of, speaking of saints, you know, speaking of saints, yeah, we have a, uh, Gary and Debbie Mason, uh, uh, angel funds because he was always helping kids. So you know, people that contribute to that Gary and Debbie uh, Mason Angel Fund are going to be taking care of students who he took care of, you know, students in need. 
Yeah, but yeah, very good. You know, huge loss for the school. You know, I'm so sorry. Well, here's to Gary. Yes. Yeah. Yes. May his Most memory definitely. be a blessing. Most definitely. Well, tell people, I guess, here's the thing. Like I've had, as I've had you on the show before and people are like, well, how do, how do I reach out to him? So we let people know how they might email you if they have questions or they want to maybe figure out how to get that curriculum in their school. Yes. So I'm T green at bishopodow.org. Yep. T as in Tony green, like the color at bishopodow.org. And I'll make sure that link is on heyhumanpodcast.com. There you go. You're the best. Yes. No, you're the best. <laughs> I'm across the screen from the best because you make it happen. <laughs> well, you let's mirror each other in our bestness. I'm just, I'm just so, I'm so happy you're on the planet. I've, it's again, I, I can get bogged down sometimes. I, and I, I know that I, I'm, I can't, I can't do that. Cause I, there's can't important, there's important work to be done. And I don't like, I have the luxury to not think about things because of the, what life I was born into. And yes. so then even more so I can't rest on yes. that. And, you know, you think about the stories of our mutual friends, you know, uh, think of Sedich Inich. I, I yes. love him. Yeah, of course. Yes. He's going to be speaking in my ninth grade class Wednesday. Oh. Yeah. But I'm going to be going out on the water with Eric Jones, uh, taking uh, uh, Gary Mason's wife out very soon, too. You know, speaking of, you know, positive people, you know, who've come from struggles. Yeah. Uh, I've had everyone on the show. Not yet your wife, and we'll have to get her on for sure. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah she, she would love to be on. Tony, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Susan. It's Absolutely. always a pleasure. And you're welcome anytime you want to come on the show and talk about anything. I, you have an open door. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.